first of all, on behalf of the Mohideen Ibn Arabi Society, which was established over 30 years ago in England, I would like to say thank you and thank you and thank you to the organizers of this conference, the first of its kind in Istanbul and Damascus together, a collaboration which is evidence of a new breath, a new spirit in the world. And I'm honored to have the opportunity to address this distinguished gathering. I know that many of you were expecting William Chittick to speak about the wisdom of animals, as it is in the program. So this is another view of the wisdom of animals, entitled, O Marvel. This refers to the famous lines of Ibn Arabi's poem, O Marvel, a garden amidst the flames. My heart has become capable of all forms. When I first started to think about writing this, I came across a very curious item on the BBC website. On the 14th of December last year, at the remarkable age of 116, a humble man in the Ukraine, who was said to have been the oldest living person in the world, passed away peacefully in his sleep. His life had bridged the whole of the 20th century. When he was born in March 1891, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was still in power in Europe, a rival to the Ottoman, a far cry from modern democracies. Perhaps more telling than the political structures, the average life expectancy at that time in Europe was less than 50. In modern European countries, it's nearly 80. When he was born, Europe's population amounted to 25% of the world, one in four. The world population as a total was just over 1.5 billion. When he died last year, estimates of world population were four times as much just over six and a half billion. Two-thirds of the world's current population live in just 17 countries. The 17th place, incidentally, is Turkey. According to conservative estimates, one-tenth of the population of humankind is living on the planet today. This expansion of human beings on the planet is not simply completely unprecedented, but according to all the experts, looks set to continue every year. There are 70 to 80 million people born and extra in the world every year. That is the equivalent of a country the size of Turkey. 
According to some people, by the year 2050, within the lifetime of many people in this audience, there will be 9 billion people living on the planet. I'm mentioning these staggering figures to give us all a sense of perspective on the changes that are taking place in our world and the challenges that lie ahead for everyone. What are we to make of these figures? Do they fill us with a sense of alarm, of foreboding, of fear? Does it make us think of human greed, wastefulness, conflict? Or does it make us think of the ways in which people are increasingly cooperating with each other in terms of trade, medicine, travel? Do we welcome these aspects of modernity or do we reject them? In, nine, in 1798, Malthus predicted that the food supply would be unable to keep up with population growth. And yet, in the last half of the 20th century, world grain production increased by 250%. The scientific and technological changes that have swept the globe in the last 20 years electronic communications, internet, medical advances, and so on, are also testament to the profound capacity of human beings to overcome apparently insurmountable obstacles. The development economist Jeffrey Sachs refers to the current time as the age of convergence, where it is feasible to extend the high standards of living enjoyed by few rich countries to every country, where poverty could be eradicated, where economic development and advanced technology and medicine could become a worldwide phenomenon. This is the mark of our era. As population has grown, societies have become increasingly complex and specialized until we now enter an era of globalization in which systems of governance, law, culture, and thought are converging with all the problems that that entails. There is no doubt at all that the world we study in our history books is no longer the one that surrounds us. The challenges we face today are not the ones that our predecessors had to contend with. At the recent Bali conference on climate change, Al Gore recently said, we, the human species, face a planetary emergency. Planetary, not national. He cited one example. The entire polar ice cap will disappear in five to seven years, according to the most recent forecasts and to show how wrong we can be until very, very recently it was believed we had until 2050. It is little wonder then that the term which has been used for this era by the Nobel Prize winning scientist Paul Crutzen is the Anthropocene.
the age of mankind. Human beings have taken hold not only of the economy and the population dynamics, but even of the Earth's physical systems. We are living in a time when the human species is the most significant organ of transformation on the planet. Human activity is affecting natural cycles and all other creatures are having to adapt or perish. At the same time, our ability to understand what is involved in this control, our ability to take responsibility, has lagged far, far behind our capacity to create these conditions. It is as if we are seated on Solomon's throne without the benefit of any of his wisdom. There are many different reactions to these facts. The imminent environmental catastrophe is a product of human selfishness, according to some. Perhaps it is even human nature. So, the argument goes, wouldn't it be better if human beings simply disappeared from the face of the planet? The whole natural world would be better off. Other people refer to what the Quran calls the corruption, fasad, foreseen by the angels when God announced that he would create a khalifa on the earth. Will you place on it, they asked, one who will do corruption therein and shed blood? Now some might say, even if Adam was capable of rising above the mire, his children are evidently not. Some go so far as to correlate all of this with ideas of the end of the world. To rephrase Al Gore, we might say, the planet faces a human emergency. It is very tempting to view all this as a series of doom and gloom negatives. But that has always seemed to me to be a very good excuse for extremely bad behavior. It assumes that we are judging the situation correctly. It assumes that human beings are doomed to do corruption. However, and this is where one can learn from the way the Quran is structured, the Quran states immediately after this questioning by the angels, God said, I know that which you do not. And then Adam demonstrated to the angels the true human rank by showing them their names. What is being revealed from the suprahuman is entirely clear. Nobody comprehends the real dignity of human being except God. Or except, as Ibn Arabi puts it, except those who know how to contemplate God perfectly. No one can deny that human activities leave a great deal to be desired, but that view alone would ignore the essential capacity we have for self-transcendence, for going beyond apparent limitations, for working in harmony with others, not against them, for assuming the dignity of the complete human being which lies in the potential of each and every one of us. 
At this point, let me refer directly to the work of Ibn Arabi, who can be said, without exaggeration, to have promoted one of the most intensely positive and harmonious visions of human potential and realization. The universality and inclusivity found in the thought and writings of Ibn Arabi offers an endlessly fertile field of study. This is not only true for the specialist scholar and academic, but equally promises a rich cultural and civil reward for societies and individuals anywhere in the world. His words speak to a deeper appreciation, not only of our own spiritual heritage, but the whole heritage of being human. Beyond even the vast scope of the Abrahamic tradition, there is no culture and no form of belief to which he cannot speak since he stresses four fundamental things. First of all, the essential unity of all life, of all living things. And for him, all things are living. Secondly, the highest possible rank of the true human being, irrespective of gender, class, or nation, or any other description. Thirdly, the ultimate supremacy of divine mercy and infinite compassion at every level. And finally, and perhaps most importantly in some ways, it needs to be stressed, he speaks of an infinite number of different perspectives and viewpoints being included within unity. Unity means fullest expression and differentiation. I'd like to quote a small passage from his Futuchat, which is like a cautionary tale in the light of the current dilemmas that face us. I once met one of the wandering pilgrims on the sea coast between Marsa Lakit and the lighthouse. This is just outside Tunis. The man told me that on the same spot he had come across one of the saints, one of the Abdal, walking upon the waves of the sea. And then the man recounts the story. I greeted him and he returned my greeting. This was a time of great injustice and oppression in the country. So I asked him what he thought of all the injustices that were happening in the land. He glared at me angrily and said, What is that to you or any of God's servants? Don't speak of anything except that which is good. May God grant you help and accept your apology for that. At first sight, a typical quietist, saintly viewpoint. Forget the world. Disengage from worldly realities. Don't look at the terrible things which people are doing. Concentrate on the reality behind all phenomena. However, there is far more to it. As Ibn Arabi observes, 
lacks, defects, impurities, are matters of accident. They don't belong to the real us. What is essential, what is, is pure. In the final chapter of his Futuchat, the first piece of advice which Ibn Arabi gives to all people is as follows. Think only good of God in every state. Never think ill of him. You do not know whether the breath that is leaving you now is going to be your last and you die, and whether you will meet God with a good opinion of him. Not a bad one. You do not know. Perhaps God will take you in that breath that leaves you. So leave what is said by those who think ill while you're still alive and think only good of God at the time of your death. For according to the knowers of God, that time is not known and they are with God in each of their breaths. If this is true of thought, it is equally true of speech. Our mentioning of the negative goes against our real nature and the fundamental nature of things. To mention or speak of the good is, of course, to remember the good. To mention God is to remember that he is the one reality that exists apart from which there is no other. And as the Hadith Qudsi puts it, if he mentions me in himself, I mention him in myself. And if he mentions me in an assembly, I mention him in a better assembly than that. It is necessary then for any serious student of truth to concentrate on the essential, that which is good, and plead with God's intercession in everything other than that. Now the implication of such behavior is actually dramatic, nothing less than a complete shift of perspective, which makes surface judgment not only redundant, but actively harmful. To mention something other than the good is to give it a reality that it doesn't have and imprison ourselves against the truth. To the spiritually realized this world and each moment of it, this present where past touches future in a dimensionless isthmus, this is theophanic. It is displaying the divine face and it is completely under the divine jurisdiction. Even if we don't see that, God knows that which we do not. Ibn Arabi speaks of two worlds. A world of creation, which he calls the world of composites, and the world of command, which is angelic or spiritual. The first world is a relative world of accident, more or less, good or evil, and it contains, of course, the whole of the material universe. The second is an essential world of good in which there is no lack. When explaining the angel's rejection of Adam 
Ibn Arabi refers to these two worlds as being in some sense totally opposed to each other. For the angelic, good is what exists, hence their eternal and unwavering praise of the divine. From this point of view, all the polarities which are inherent here in relativity are simply not real. As Ibn Arabi says, all good which becomes manifest within this world of creation derives from its divine spirit, which is procreative light. Any fall, then, from constant praise is actually a falling away and a rejection of what is real. This explains the dispute of the angels with God. From their point of view, constant praise is always better than a praise subject to relativity. However, Ibn Arabi says the human being is not simply angelic. In fact, there is a condition which is beyond the angelic. He writes, had the angels truly known themselves, they would have known, and had they known, they would have been safeguarded. Their disparagement of Adam carried on with their claim that they give great sanctification and glorification to God. But Adam possessed certain divine names which the angels did not have, and they were not able to glorify or sanctify their Lord with them in the way that Adam did. On the face of it, Ibn Arabi is saying that Adam is superior to the angels. And yet, the inference that he draws from the story is that this is a divine education for human beings in our condition. Unless we know ourselves in our real Adamic nature as the divine image, in other words, as God knows us, our knowledge is provisional and subject to error. We may think we are right, but we remain veiled by our own selves, and we cannot imagine anything superior. We may be right in our own eyes, and yet utterly wrong. This points out what should be our fundamental attitude to truth. Complete prostration before the one who is eminent might and all-knowing. And that prostration is exactly what the angels displayed after their dispute. Ibn Arabi is therefore depicting the human as the divine image, infinitely capable of reflecting all the names and qualities, receptive of all forms. The human being molded with the two hands of God who receives the divine spirit. The human is complete mirror to God, the human as the supreme barzakh, the isthmus between God and creation, the eye of the world, as Professor Kilich put it, between the infinite unknown and the worlds of manifestation. This is not simply for him a theoretical schema that involves simply our minds. It is the actuality behind our experience if we only knew and saw. Ibn Arabi is always keen to point out that the Arif, the Gnostic, is exactly like everybody else except he sees and he knows. 
If we only knew and saw, we would become human. If the waters of our individual nature were stilled, the total divine image would be capable of manifesting on its surface as it really is. The full human potential within awaits our consent to manifest, yet we imprison this reality within a construct we call ourselves and others. In the famous Hadith Qudsi, which Ibn Arabi quotes often, I was sick and you did not visit me, indicating that the reality of the other is in fact one of my servants. And had you visited him, you would have found me with him. If we were to understand the true import of this saying, we would see that the sickness does not lie in others outside us, but in our own self. And only then could we begin the real visiting and finding of the divine. Ibn Arabi's famous poem, O Marvel, My Heart Has Become Capable of All Forms, is not a creed of a theoretical unity where all religions are somehow melded into one. This is the direct perception of someone who has realized his true humanity and articulates the joy of his discovery to awaken this potential in others. This is a marvelous integration which gives full value to differentiation. As he thunderously proclaims in one of his early works, the Anka Mukhrib, so recognize, know your God before death comes, lest you die and you are still held captive by convention. If one thing has impressed me about Al Gore and other prominent men and women in our own time, it is the way he is able to articulate the real benefit of a positive outlook. And I'm quoting from his speech in Bali. Instead of shaking our heads at the difficulty of this task and saying, woe is us, this is impossible, how can we do this? We ought to feel a sense of joy that we have work that is worth doing that is so important to the future of all mankind. We ought to feel a sense of exhilaration that we are the people alive at, the, at a moment in history where we can make all the difference. End of quote. Such a sense of joy in vocation used to be restricted to the religiously minded. Now the actions of everyone, great and small, affect the restoration of balance on this planet both exteriorly and interiorly. We are indeed living in a remarkable era when the dignity and responsibility of the individual human being is being brought to the fore in all aspects. Every man, or rather, the singular complete man who is the reality of every man, is beginning to come of age. In short, and in conclusion, 
The challenge is to see ourselves in the light of the human divine image, to know that we have been blessed with existence and that we are dressed in divine names and qualities and to act according to what is best in us. Change lies in our own hands and God knows that which we do not. Thank you.